Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thanks for joining for ASHP's Practice Journeys podcast. This podcast invites members to share their stories about their professional path, lessons learned, and how their experiences shaped who and where they are today. My name is Daniel Koba. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of AJHP and Vice President of Publishing at ASHP, and I will be your host today for the ASHP Practice Journeys podcast. In recognition of pride, ASHP will host four podcasts with LGBTQ leaders in pharmacy this month. With me today are Jorge Garcia and Lehner Martinez. Thanks for joining me today, Jorge and Lehner. Let's get started talking about your journey as pharmacy leaders, as a couple, and, oh, by the way, gay men. Let me start off by, I just want to check in with you. I hope that both of you and your family, that you've been well throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, absolutely. I'll go first. I want to begin by thanking you for this unique opportunity and how great it is for ASHP to be able to make this available for our members. So thank you for that. COVID-19 has been unprecedented and it's called for unprecedented coping mechanisms. As a family with two small children that haven't been to daycare since March this year, it's created a void and we happen to have a great support system with both grandmas being very involved and engaged to help us navigate through the different work demands. And it just happens that with COVID-19 at work, the demand bringing us to the coping mechanisms that we need at work has demanded us to be more at work than before. So definitely a lot of challenges there. Well, you know, it's really interesting. One of the things that I wanted to get to later in our conversation was the balance and how you balance the demands of career and raising a family. And I was wondering about how much family support you have and to sort of think of it in the lens of COVID-19 really brings it into focus. Laner, how are you doing? Doing very well. Thank you uh, also to ASHP and to yourself for the opportunity to speak on this issue. But other than that, doing very well, just doing my best at work and at home and just like everybody else trying to get through this pandemic and hopefully together United will get through it and find a vaccine and a mechanism to help patients moving forward. You know, it's really interesting to be here with you guys today. This is the third interview that I've done as part of this series. And it just seems like yesterday when I was standing at the head of the board table in ASHP's boardroom and it's in our old building, and the two of you are right there. Somehow you're there during a residency visit and UPMC group was there. I immediately felt a connection with the two of you and somehow figured out pretty quickly. I'm not sure how that is that you were a couple. What year was that? You would know because it was the year you were a resident. So I assume it was during your PGY1 year. Correct. It was 2011. <laughs> 2011. Absolutely. It was so special to be there in the ASHP office and go through that exercise. I was fascinated by how much feedback you guys were looking from us, even residents at that level. It was um, an unforgettable visit, and so definitely remember vividly. And so 2011, almost 10 years ago. Lehner, what about your thoughts on that visit to ASHP 10 years ago? And it was our first opportunity to get to know each other. What what are your reflections on it all these years later? 
as a young resident in the field trying to make it, it was a lifetime of an opportunity. I mean, I have not been back to Bethesda ever since in my career, unfortunately, for multiple reasons. But it was a very special moment to be at the headquarters near DC, right? And interacting with people like yourself and others who's been in the profession and have given so much to the profession. So it felt very privileged to be able to have those discussions and to provide feedback on how we can make residency programs better and make the organization better. So I think reflecting back on it, it's only but pure privilege, truly a wonderful opportunity to have in a career, especially as a resident. Well, we'll have to work on getting you back to Bethesda then. It's been far too long. Um, Get back to Washington. So tell us about what you're doing today. You're both in leadership positions in the Baptist system, right? So I'm currently the director of pharmacy services at Baptist Hospital of Miami. It's part of the Baptist healthcare system in South Florida. It's about almost an 800-bed-sized hospital where I'm the director of pharmacy And I'm basically responsible for everything related to clinical and operation when it comes to pharmacy at a local level. We do have a very unique structure in our healthcare system that we belong to a corporate pharmacy division. We are structured through a chief pharmacy officer kind of organizational model. And that has brought a lot of changes to our organization and opportunities for pharmacists, technicians, and students and interns. So I'm just very blessed to be part of pharmacy leadership as a whole, and be able to make a difference through my role. And Jorge, what about you? What's your role in the Baptist system at this point? So I am an assistant vice president for the oncology pharmacy service line. And that role is a little bit unique in the sense that it's not tailored to a specific facility, but it is more so tailored to meet the needs of a service line system-wide. And so that does bring me to work close with Lehner on his inpatient oncology service. So it's not uncommon for us to be on the same meetings with his team and my team, trying to approach uh, different issues and opportunities. And also at large, we have different system pharmacy initiatives that bring us together in regional pharmacy director meetings and other meetings of that nature. And obviously we are a family and our peers know and understand that. So I think it's been very unique. I was thinking about this, and for the majority of our career, we have actually worked together in different organizations. And so I think to us, it's just become our norm. So that's really interesting. When you think about in the Baptist system, are there other couples that come to mind where you have a married couple who happen to both be leaders in some way in the organization that are around the table together? Or are you really highly unusual? I think there are others within the pharmacy division and outside the pharmacy division, and we share it openly. My personal philosophy is I don't like to impose my life on others, but if others come and ask, I feel the need to be transparent and let them know like it is. And so in that life journey, I do have pictures of my family, my office, and so if the conversation comes up, I always welcome it. Through that, you just begin to know of other families, and that has been the case in our previous organization. I actually have a very nice story to share. When Lehner and I were getting ready for our first baby, Valentina, we were working at the Memorial Healthcare System, and we were both directors of pharmacy for different areas. 
the whole team. So the Joe DiMaggio Children's Hospital, that's where Lehner was at. The Memorial Cancer Institute, that was the division I was at. And the flagship hospital where our offices were in that main campus. Those basically three large teams got together and put a baby shower for us that's something truly special and meaningful for us. That day, this was obviously a surprise baby shower, so we were not anticipating or expecting that. That day when we both drove home, we got on the phone. I can't say it was disbelief, but the level of support and encouragement that we got from all levels of the organization was just so truly special. And that day we knew that at large, that it was okay, that our peers were so comfortable and supportive of what was going on. And I know Lehner remembers this experience very well, so I'll just let him chime in on that. I just wanted to give a little bit of my perspective. I'm a little bit different when it comes to Jorge, when it comes to making people aware of who I am as a whole, and as a whole meaning my family. To me, it's important for people to understand that I can't separate one from the other one to make my whole. I make it a point for people to be aware of my same-sex marriage, that I have two kids and that we're done through surrogacy. And I feel responsible for advocating through those conversations that are normally happening at any point. I drive to the point to make sure that people do understand, yes, I'm a gay man, but I have a very centered family dynamics and a very successful career and a profession that I'm very thankful that I belong to. And I try to drive those conversations at a personal level to build relationships and to also advocate. I think it's important to tell the story to others for people to start thinking differently. I Sometimes those conversations, I do them with a little bit more intent, perhaps than Jorge, when I'm meeting someone, especially now more comfortable on my role, probably not years ago when I was a first resident and trying to make it. But now that it's more of an established role in who I am comfortably, I've come to terms with that, that who I am as a whole comes with the whole package. You know, it's interesting to hear both of you offer those perspectives and somewhat from a different angle, both of them. But we thought about putting this podcast series together. We wanted to celebrate pride. We wanted to recognize ASHP's LGBTQ members and also to provide support for people who may be in different places in their journey. And I think what I heard you both say is it's okay to take different approaches. And one works for one of you and the other works for the other. And I think that's great for our listeners to hear that too. I want to jump to your your journey to the United States. So you both immigrated to the United States from Cuba, right? That's right. Yes, correct. What year was that? Lanner, what year did you arrive in the U.S.? 1999. 1999. So I don't like to do this to you, but hopefully the people who are listening won't be that quick with their math. But how old were you when you arrived in the U.S.? 16 years of age. You were 16 when you got here from Cuba. And Jorge, what about you? So I arrived here in year 2000, September 1st of year 2000. I was 15 years old at the time. 15. It's fascinating to me that the parallels in your lives and the journey that you made, 
both your personal journey as well as your professional journey. It's just so interesting to me. What was your experience as you arrived to the United States from Cuba, or what was your experience leaving Cuba to come to the United States? I think obviously our listeners would be really interested in hearing those perspectives. Absolutely. I'm happy to start. I grew up being a very conscious and self-aware kid when it came to understanding that I was growing up in a country that was actually different and a country that was communist. And I knew that it wasn't communist superpower, Soviet Union or Russia as we know it today or China. You know, I think now as an adult, I can have added perspective on what it really would mean for a communist model for an island isolated in the Caribbean. I remember just being very curious and asking my parents about the status of the country. I remember the revolution had this phrase that they will call a special period. And that was popular in the early 90s, just really telling the country as a whole to get ready for a special period ahead, meaning economic crisis and things getting a little bit worse. And I remember asking my parents, to me, the word special means good. You know, you go to a restaurant and you want the, the house special. It's something good. So why are we calling, if our country is becoming more poor, right, in kids' term, why are we calling it a special period? So at the time that I was having those questions, I was about six years old, which is really early on. As I became closer to my teen years, the revolution was nearing 50 years And I just, uh, as a young adult, knew that a prosperous, different Cuba was not in the foreseeable future. And so just 20 years later, now today, I could see that I, as a kid, I was right on that. But I came to the harsh reality of many Cubans, and that is to understand that for a better future, the only answer was leaving the system and leaving the island. So I became preoccupied with my and my family plan to be able to achieve that. At this point in time, in the close to the late 90s, you know, the Cuban government and other external governments had many limitations in place to control immigration. And at that point, we already had Marielle and Peter Pan and other large migration operations that had already happened. And so there was more control on that process, and I just feared that I would not be able to achieve that. So I remember actually going to Catholic Church on Sundays, and I would remember just praying and asking God, I only want one thing, and that is to be able to one day be able to leave the country. And so many highs and lows on that plan came by. Sometimes it seemed like we had a plan to come to the U.S. and things will fall through and it will be another few years waiting and trying something different. But finally, September 1st, 2000, it really became truth. And not until I landed in Miami did I really believe that that was happening. And that was probably one of the most important life events for me, my family, obviously, because it impacted almost every aspect of my life. And then, you know, I think another conversation is coming into a new country, new culture, being a teenager, trying to fit into the high school mode of things when you're dealing with the challenges of just being a teenager, trying to fit in, you're trying to pick up a new language, kids are going to make fun of your accent. So that was a very interesting dynamics, but I was always determined. I knew that I wanted to be a professional 
And so to me, speaking English was a really, really, really big deal. And one of the only barriers that I saw between me and my ability to become a professional. And so I, I took that very seriously. I had, for example, some Cuban friends that I would try to speak English with to try to practice. And they would just think, you know, I was trying to show off. And so they didn't want to be friends with me. So you go through those phases and you just have to, even though you're very young, you have to understand what you want and what you need to get out of it to be able to succeed with your agenda. We could spend hours talking about this experience, but Lehner, I mean, you were similar in age. It was in the same time frame, that 1999 to 2000 time frame. Were your experiences similar to Jorge's? Yes, very similar. Same pathway where my family was eagerly and desperate trying to find alternatives to try to leave the island. Thankfully, we were able to do so through the U.S. visa lottery system. My father was able to obtain a visa and approval, and the entire main family was able to migrate to the United States, uh, arrive in Miami. And yes, same challenges like Jorge describes, adjusting to the new culture, adjusting to the country. Obviously, no speaking the language whatsoever. That was a major barrier for me in high school. And I'm not good in languages to begin with, so that was definitely a challenge. And one of the major reasons I decided to go to school and to also leave Miami as a whole and go up north on my pathway to find snow and find the American dream and the American culture, because Miami didn't have that and it wasn't going to offer that, right? And I knew what Miami could offer, which is the Latin experience, which is what I'm all about. That set a whole pathway, my career and professional ambitions to go to Florida State University and go to pharmacy school in Pennsylvania and take a different pathway completely away from Miami to later return home as an accomplished professional to make a difference in my community. You layer on top of your experiences, you were adolescents, probably one of the most challenging times of life, or at least we think so then. You were immigrating to a new country and layer on top of that, that you were were gay. How self-aware were you at that point in time that you were gay? And did, did that affect your experience in some way? I'll start first. I think I have always known since I can remember. When I migrated to this country, I was going through a major transformation period in terms of understanding my sexuality for a long time and how that was going to come out to others was something that I really did not consider at any level in Cuba. I mean, we're talking about a culture that is notorious for being intolerant towards gays. And to me, that was just not an option. In fact, I grew up being fear about that being something known. I did my typical things uh, growing up, like having girlfriends and, and the typical things that all the boys are supposed to do. And that was the best coping mechanism that under that culture and my level of understanding of who I was and how I needed to fit in produced. And so coming to the U.S. was a change in, in the fact that this country, even though we still have so many setbacks, is still way ahead of Cuba. And so for me, going out there and seeing places where gay people meet and socialize and you for the first time you realize that you're not alone in the world and that uh, the things that you have been experiencing it's very common among other peoples too it really begins to change your approach on on how 
you want to embrace and, and who you want to be in the new environment that you are in. So that was a very unique period, and it was clear to me down the line that I needed to have a discussion with my parents, and definitely that was a turning point. And then eventually getting that beyond the immediate family members to colleagues and friends. So I would say it was a, a self-discovery process of re-evaluating who you are in this new environment that is a little bit more accepting than what I grew up in. Dana, was it similar for you? Kind of, but for me, was arriving to the United States was the freedom that I was able to gain, not only from a political challenge in society, but also from being free as to who I am. You know, I grew up in a very small town. People know each other the entire lives, and it's a different environment when you grow up in a large city, right? Coming to Miami as a large city from a very small town is a whole different mindset. And when I arrived to Miami, that was the freedom that I was looking for, to better be who I was. And to me, that pivotal moment in, in my life from truly start understanding who I am and affecting myself fully as I am was when I disclosed that information to my parents and my mother. And they really embraced, luckily, who I was and fully supported me all around, from career ambitions to personal goals to who I was as a person. And once that happened, then for me, the concerns were definitely moving forward. Obviously, I've always been a little bit conservative when it comes to a little bit of disclosing who I am, especially early on in my career, especially towards pharmacy school and residency process for matching. But the point is that once my parents knew who I was, the rest of the world, it was only going to be informed. And I didn't care more anything after that. I completely connect with that, Laner. I had very similar experience. Once I had conversations with my family members, with my mother and my sisters, from my perspective, that was liberating. And um, I often describe my journey as a 13-year journey when I first started in 1983 until I had those conversations in 1996. But now, so you both decided on pharmacy as a profession. And later, you made some references to going north. I believe that was Erie, Pennsylvania, right? Yes, correct. So tell me about when your decisions to pursue pharmacy as a profession and when you met each other sort of in that time frame, because as you can imagine, one of the things that I'm really interested in is also talking about your experience as residents and going through the match as a couple, being in a program together as a couple and going from there. But when did you make your decisions to pursue pharmacy school? When did you meet each other in relation to that? And talk about where you went to school and the decisions that drove, uh, what drove your decisions to pursue those schools? From my perspective, I was on my career journey to be a pharmacist in healthcare as a whole. I've always debated a lot when I was in college, what kind of healthcare profession I wanted to join. I've considered dentistry, considered pharmacy, consider medicine. It was a very difficult moment for me to decide which career pathway to pursue. But when I met Jorge, I've already established that commitment that I was going to go to pharmacy school. And I was only applying to three-year programs, meaning pharmacy schools that have a curriculum of a three-year program that are accelerated only throughout the country. 
because I've already have achieved a bachelor's degree. And I said to myself, not realizing much about the pharmacy profession itself, if I can cut one year in my schooling, then that would put me into the workforce a lot earlier, right? But then I meet Jorge, and Jorge's also interested in the same career pathway and the same passion for professional growth. And we both got accepted to complete opposite schools in the country, right? Like you mentioned earlier, I, I did get accepted into pharmacy school in Erie, Pennsylvania, and in Boston, and Jorge got accepted to school in South Florida. Yet we have probably met like six months earlier at first. And it came at a point in our, in our lives where we had to decide as a couple that just met about six months earlier, what do we do from here on? Knowing that we're both very eagerly to continue our professional growth and development, but also deeply in love as young birds, right? And at that point, we really, really decided that long distance was going to be the way. I was going to go to Erie, Pennsylvania. He was going to stay in South Florida. And we were going to make it through somehow. And that's how it all began in our careers and in our journey to continue pursuing a professional degree and staying in love and together and committed as a couple no matter the distance. Lena, I wanted to talk a little bit more about that. Now, as someone who grew up in southwestern Pennsylvania in one of the two big cities in the state of Pennsylvania, we'll probably get some emails about my making that comment. But you know, I'm a Pittsburgh native and I know Erie pretty well because I used to drive through when I was living in Rochester, New York. And I'm interested in your experiences going to a smaller city, leaving South Florida, and the support that you had there for your long distance relationship and the network that you had there to, I imagine, must have been nurturing and helped you and Jorge be successful. In, did you find that support in Erie? I did. I did. I, I actually have great memories from Erie and Western Pennsylvania. I have met the most kind people that you can ever meet in Erie, Pennsylvania. People that are very proud from who they are and where they're from and that area of the country. And Erie was an interesting dynamic because it's not a small city. It's not a large city. It is by the lake. You do get that lake effect snow, right? I'm from Cuba. My <laughs> jeans are not meant to be in the snow and that cold weather. By nature, I am defying every possible pathway for me to be there. But it's through humble friendships and relationships developing school that really got me through that. And I think, you know, like people say, Erie and Pittsburgh are still on the East Coast, but are, people are like kind of like, from the middle of the country, if you will, and, and it's a different mindset. I truly believe in that. It was a different experience for me. I today still have long friends that I've made in Erie, Pennsylvania, that helped me so much through pharmacy school on a personal and professional level. The other thing that kept us going and kept me going was the relationship with Jorge because I had somebody else to relate to where what I was going through and talk about it and kind of have a support system. Even though we were not fully out very out there while we were in pharmacy school at the very beginning. At least I wasn't in Erie, Pennsylvania. Obviously, I was conscious of the environment that I was in. Some people were very conservative, and I didn't know how much I could push with me feeling comfortable and disclosing to everybody that, that Jorge was my partner. But indeed, I had a roommate, and the roommate saw Jorge coming in, and we talked about that. 
right? And I disclosed that, and I had my best friends, and I became aware of who Jorge was, and, and our monthly visits and planes and trying to see each other. So I think as people got to know me, like I always told you earlier on, it's important for them to know me as a whole. And I started bridging that gap more comfortably, little by little. And obviously, rumors go and people talk. And then sometimes you don't have to address things and people know about it and just are mindful of that and accept just who you are. And I think those early beginnings were really foundational for me to really embrace me even more in a professional setting. So, so, yeah, I recall good experiences from theory. So, Jorge... He convinced you somehow to, to move north and not far from Erie to do residency training in Pittsburgh at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Did you go through the match as a couple? We did. And actually, there's more to that. The journey in Erie was beautiful for me as well. I concur with Lehner completely that although rough from a personal standpoint, Laner only knows what a proof of love it is for me to get on those tiny little planes that would put <laughs> the landing gear down and you would feel the aircraft was breaking in half to land in, in Erie, Pennsylvania. And I did that multiple times through snowstorms and things like that. But I also agree that the journey, a logical concern when we knew that we needed to have this journey of long distance, we had only known each other for six months. So it wasn't like we were falling back on a very solid relationship. We were still building our trust and getting to know each other. So that was a huge risk. And we also knew that we both were going to be going through rigorous training, right? So the stressors that come with that. But to Laner's point, because we both were going through exactly the same thing, I think that that really helped. I think if I had a partner in the engineering industry or something else, and I was like, I had a PK exam, they may not understand what that meant, but I told Laner, I have a PK pharmacokinetic exam coming up, and I needed to explain no more. Like, he knew he wasn't going to hear from me for a couple of days. And I really think that that was helpful, and it was foundational to really have us feel inside how much we really wanted to be with each other. And it's something that we work towards for years. So when we finally got there, we understood how much we appreciated that, how much we wanted that. And I'm glad that that happened because ever since we've been together at home and at work, residency together, I think life really compensated there. We live and work together, spend a lot of time with each other together now. But when we left Erie, Lehner said, I don't think I'll ever be back to Pennsylvania. I'm done. This is done. And then we, we land our match in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So this time we both come together for that. So we did do the couples match. The concept of applying to residency through a match process was a little bit terrifying because that could potentially mean two additional years of long distance after we've already done so much of that. And we both wanted the health and pharmacy administration combined residency so we knew that that was a two-year commitment to begin with. So the match couple option became very attractive to us. So we studied that in detail and decided to proceed with that. What is really interesting with the match couple is that when you apply as a single individual, you just rank the site in terms of priority, your priority level. When you do it as a couple, you have to match every potential combination. And so for us, that was about 70 potential combinations. 
So it would be obviously Jorge and Lehner first together on one side, Jorge and Lehner together on another side. But you get to combinations where it's like Lehner in Pittsburgh, Jorge in Houston, Jorge in Ohio, Jorge in Wisconsin, then Lehner in Wisconsin, Jorge in Houston, Ohio, blah, blah, blah. So when you do the ranking, statistically speaking, you have so many other options where you're not going to land the same residency program. You're just going to be in different parts of the country. And just going through that exercise was a bit nerve-wracking to not get into the details. And we know the mass rules. I would just say that Lainer and I couldn't be happier to have <laughs> matched together in the same program and have done that in Pittsburgh. There was really no better scenario for us than that. I'm not an alcohol person. I think that day we celebrated with alcohol, and that included me. <laughs> <laughs> What was the experience like as you interviewed with programs and presented as a couple, two gay men who were going through the match as a couple? How was that received? Lainer, what, what are your recollections of the experience and the process? Dan, that's a very interesting question. At least we never disclosed up front that we were a couple. We were interviewing as two separate individuals while applying through the couple's match process, but not really disclosing up front so much about my significant other component. Mm -hmm. Why? Because we were both actually interested in the same career pathway. We were both interviewing at the same programs, right? In Pittsburgh, in Houston, in Ohio, in, in these places where in finance administration, there's also the network, right? And it's very small at that level. So it was kind of very uncomfortable to disclose that, right? Especially up north in Wisconsin and places that we've never been and, and very unaware of the culture and how accepting they could be or the stereotyping around that, not knowing what you don't know, right? But we went through it, at least from my perspective, not disclosing that information and just trying to fight for the spot as to who I was and what can I bring to the table. Later, in life, you realize that some people just know, like you mentioned, and have that feeling. Some people do Google you. And back then, there was only MySpace and social media available. And, and there was not Facebook and other things so much uh, put together, at, at least for us. You realize how much people know up front that you perhaps, you're not aware that they know so much of you. When you're going through a residency program and they're trying to figure out who you are also as a person. That dynamic is kind of stressful because we couldn't bear to have to cope with two more years of long distance and not knowing if we're going to be if we were going to be together or not. And then it is stressful also because you do not know how welcoming that residency class will be. Your own peers, your preceptors, your director and coordinator, and and you have to. Test the water little by little and try to understand the culture and how you fit into that and how you as a gay man also fit into that entire culture. But like Jorge mentioned, we were blessed to be accepted at the residency program in Pittsburgh under the directorship of Scott Mai and many wonderful people that believed in us for who we were and who we are and were able to see beyond all of that. And little by little, we started gaining confidence and, and becoming ourselves and kind of hinting as to who we really are and where and getting there. And then also feeling comfortable and us changing those perceptions on them. I think it was a dual relationship 
on that journey of from everybody who met with us and probably Jorge, you can add more, but at least that's from my perspective. So yeah. my, my biggest point is, is whoever's listening to this podcast, I think is try to find a culture that you fit in. To me, that was important when I was applying into the residency program as desperate as I was to try to get in anywhere because it is very competitive. It is also important to understand can you fit into that culture and that environment, right? Because the culture of Pittsburgh was very different from the one in Houston and certainly from the one in Wisconsin. So for me, it was important to see myself with people that I could be around beyond the residency hours and try to develop personal relationship with them. And I think that helped me solidify and narrow the places that I wanted to try to go after in my residency programs. So I would just add that landing a residency is a stressful process, right? And we know it's very competitive and matching in a program together and being able to not do long distance anymore was one of many other concerns we were trying to manage. And we were young. We didn't always knew if we were handling things the right way. We definitely wanted to give ourselves the best shot at postgraduate professional training we were willing and we matched options where we were both in different parts of the countries, but definitely my comfort level being in a panel, talking about my personal things at that stage in my life was something that was difficult for me. And I'm not sure I would have done such a great job in the interview if that needed to be a part of it. And so it's something that we didn't bring up. It didn't come up as part of the interview questions, and that's just the way it worked. I'll share a story with you because I think it's funny. I know Lainer and I always have a laugh when we talk about this. For our career, including residency training and then jobs afterwards, we have interviewed for exactly the same positions multiple times before. And so when it came for residency, it was the first time we experienced this. Sometimes I will go to the interview first and Lainer second. Sometimes Lainer will go first and I will go second. And we didn't have full control of that. It was sort of like how things were arranged with the program. So in Pittsburgh in particular, Lainer went first and he came back. He told me, you know, they're probably going to ask you all these questions. These are the questions that I got. They uh, took me to these fancy <laughs> places for breakfast and they took me to this fancy place for lunch. And it was like a beautiful experience all along. When I go to Pittsburgh, it is a rainy day. ASHP was doing an on-site accreditation survey, so Scott Mark was out and about with them. I didn't even get to see Scott Mark, who was the management residency director at the time. They had no time for me, you know, with things going on. They took me, my lunch was at the hospital cafeteria. And so I had all this reference point from Lehner. At the end of that interview, I called him and I said, Forget it. I have no chance to get in that from Pittsburgh. And, so, and then, you know, Scott Mark called me on the phone, apologized, and we had an opportunity to get to know each other on the phone. And we're just so glad that uh, Pittsburgh worked out in the end. Well, I'm glad that my hometown was so hospitable to you. I'm, I'm a little curious about one thing. I imagine they took you to Pamela's for breakfast, Laner, so I'm not sure that I would call it a <laughs> fancy place, but I bet that's where they took you for that breakfast. Uh, yes, and, and my right. advice to anyone is do not have that breakfast before of a full day of interview. I crashed after that. I was so full because it was also testing the culture, right? 
they wanted me to have the pancakes and eat banana pancakes and everything <laughs> that are really delicious. I could barely speak after that. So my advice when I'm on the interview process, do not go to Pamela's and do not eat the entire breakfast the way I did. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> So fast forward a bit. I know we're we're starting to get close to the hour, and there are one other topic that I really want to talk to you about. So fast forwarding, you you got back to South Florida at some point, made the decision to get married and to start a family, and I certainly I think that listeners will be very interested to hear about when you were married, and also you made Jorge before you made some references to Valentina's birth. But tell the listeners more about getting married, starting a family, and how you balance the demands of raising two young children with very demanding pharmacy executive position. Absolutely. Lainer and I talked about family, specifically in the context of having kids on the very first day that we met. And I realized that that's odd. But I think it is a statement on how non-negotiable that component was for us on day one. Like nothing else needed to be discussed if that wasn't a part of, of the deal. And that we went on to achieve many other things, professional goals, other things, before we had an organized plan for a family. But one of the things that we wanted to accomplish early on was be able to have some sort of protection about our relationship. That could not be marriage in the state of Florida at the time, but whether family for us meant adoption or any other pathway, just establishing that track record of our relationship early on was going to be conductive towards our path towards the family. So we waited and waited and had to make the choice to get married outside of Florida. And so we did that in Washington State. Why'd you pick Washington State? Nothing specific. We just, I mean, we have heard so much about Seattle. We've never been to Seattle. We said, why don't we go get married in Seattle? And then we find this amazing judge that really was very special, the way she conducted the marriage and we also took a family trip to Alaska as part of our honeymoon. We went on a honeymoon with our parents because we're so close. So, I mean, it was a whole package combined of marriage location and destination because we love traveling so much that we wanted to put it all together at once. But it was also one of the few states at that time, Dan, that you have the option to do that. Other than New York, Washington, the, the options were not there. And certainly, We've been to New York before. Obviously, I lived in Pennsylvania. That was very familiar to us. We wanted to get married in in an area of the country that was different and special to us being so far out. Interesting. So let me just translate that for you, Dan. He picked Washington State because he wanted to go on an Alaskan cruise. (laughs) Yes, that that really is the bottom line. But before we we got married, we did pursue domestic partnership in Florida. The point is that we've taken everything possible within the law to establish a relationship and take advantage of it and make a presence out of it. So we did that in Miami-Dade County when there was no other option by being a domestic partner. We did that before we got married in Seattle. Well, I'm still proud to no employer recognition of that domestic partnership for things like benefit. Even with our marriage license from Washington State, that would still not be valid here in Florida. So we were very fortunate because we both were employed and had great benefits. 
sometimes we'll be able from an economic standpoint do better if we were able to have a plan as a family, but that wasn't an option to us. So we would have our individual healthcare plans. But it was something that we live ourselves. And I I remember going through that thought process and I remember that was actually something that was actively discussed in one of our organizations and uh, the decision was to not enable non-traditional families for benefits until all the states were able to to embrace the concept of same-sex marriages. Walking through that journey as our country was being transformed in those terms was very unique, having that firsthand experience. And yesterday, the United States Supreme Court gave us another victory where we have full employment rights for all LGBTQ people across the United States. So that had to be heartening to you as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Transformational. We touched on it on the surface throughout different points of these discussions, but there was always fear along the way. In Mm -hmm. residency, first job, second job, I think we always were conscious that just who we were and our relationship by itself could be an insult to some people. And so it was very frightening to think that that could play a role on our ability to progress in our professional journey, uh, our level of engagement. And so to understand that now there is equal protection from that standpoint, from an employer standpoint, I think has been much needed and something that I have feared myself personally. On that note, advice. What do you say to the next generation that's coming up? Lainer, if you had the opportunity to give young LGBTQ pharmacist or pharmacy technician, pharmacy student advice, what would you say to them? Then I would first advise always to to pursue the highest training that you can. I think when you become educated and the more educated you become, you kind of develop this toolkit that makes you marketable, right? Enough to have options. And I think, first of all, you have to follow your passion. Choose whichever pathway in practice that you want to pursue that you fall in love with. But at the same time, try to pursue all the credentials that makes you marketable to help you grow within an organization, right? Surround yourself, I would say, by people that are good in their hearts, that are humble and that, are, that want to pay it forward to others. Those are the people that are going to spend time with you no matter who you are, to help you and to help you network with others to help you get there. I think that's extremely important as a young practitioner. I would also be mindful that you have to understand where your organization or your school or whatever pathway you are, how is the environment in that location, right? Like Jorge mentioned earlier, not all the employers that we've worked with and for has always been at the same level that they're at today, right? When we first started in our previous employer, those discussions were not happening. I mean, I would personally write a note asking the CEO, when are we gonna extend same-sex marriage, license, couples from other states, benefits, as all the hospitals in the areas are doing that. And the organization would just throw the car away and say, we're not ready to have the discussion. So I think be mindful of the organization and where they are in their journey, but also play a role in transforming that organization, right? 
through you being an advocate, through you being an example. And it takes time to get there, right? Some people get there earlier than others, but take every advantage to tell the story. You know, like same principle when you reach out for this podcast, right? This is putting our lives out there. It's a big decision, right? It is the same feeling of responsibility that we have to pay forward to others. We have to tell the story and we have to get involved. And to that point, it's the same principle for those students and people that are trying to make it. Get involved, be out there, use your network, and surround yourself by people that have a good interest at heart to help you boost your career. There's a lot of people that are willing to help more than you realize that. What, hey, what do you want to add to that? Or what different perspective do you want to provide? So for me, looking at my own life journey, if I was to go through it again, I really think I spent a lot of time thinking about fears and concerns and managing perceptions. I'm just naturally, I don't like to disappoint. And so I realized that a lot of that was not productive towards anything that helped me personally, my family, or the gay community in general. It wasn't until I really let some of that go And I began to focus on the potential, on the things that I could do, the things that I could do well, that I began to make more progress and tangible, achieve tangible results towards building something and building my future. I would just relate that message to people that are listening. Pharmacy has been this space where I felt very safe to be able to be the best professional that I could be. That was a coping mechanism to me. You know, you've mentioned we've been very successful. We are cognizant of that and very appreciative of the opportunities to get the training and the opportunities that have presented. But I think in a way, this was my coping mechanism to focus on the things I knew I could do well and stop worrying a little bit much about the other things that I didn't have so much control over. Helpful guidance from both of you for those emerging professionals and emerging leaders out there. Thank you so much. Well, that's all we have time for today. I want to thank Jorge Garcia and Leonor Martinez for joining me today to discuss their unique experience as a couple, as leaders in pharmacy. Join us here at ASHP Official and the Practice Journey podcast as we learn about how LGBTQ pharmacy leaders seek out, grow, and evolve during their careers. Jorge and Lehner, along with wishing you even more happiness as we celebrate Pride this month, I also want to wish you a very happy Father's Day on Sunday and many, many, many more happy Father's Days throughout your lives. It's been great to talk with you today, your two old friends, and this has just been a magnificent conversation. Thanks so much. Thank you, Dan, and thank you, ASHP, for doing this for us and our peers. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.